I'm Cesar Rubio, five-time past master of Palm Springs Laws number 693, and this is Masonic Muscle, where we focus on the strongest aspect of Freemasonry, a virtuous education of the mind, fortifying it with wise and serious truths, encouraging all brethren to increase their level of fitness one degree at a time, making exercise and study a cornerstone of your daily routine, because Freemasonry is work. When you put in the work, get closer and closer to the point within the circle. Masonic Muscle, we give you more light, but no light weights. We're here to pump you up, body, mind, and soul. All right, before we get to today's show, I have a real quick favor to ask of you. If you've been enjoying the Masonic Muscle podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you took one minute to give me a review on either iTunes or Spotify. It helps me out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think would get something out of it. Word of mouth is a primary way Masonic Muscle grows and spreads. So please share. Text a friend. Send out an email. However you communicate, tell them to check it out. Thank you for your continued support. And on to the show. For you California Masons out there, have you been studying your ciphers? And you know who I mean. If you're an officer of your lodge and you have committed to advancing through the chairs, you've got a lot of memory work, you've got a lot of ritual work, get into your ciphers. For you members who have been wanting to help your lodge get stronger with ritual work, have you been getting into your ciphers? Have you been digging into the mysterious origins of masonry have you been improving your spiritual moral and masonic trestle boards have you stopped making excuses and begun to improve the level of your fitness one degree at a time have you improved the quality of your nutrition if not why not when would now be a good time to start this improvement of your body mind and soul when now recently i began to dig into the uh, history of exercise and today i'm gonna forsake that <clears throat> in order to get into the patriarch theory of the origins of freemasonry it's one of the 12 that i have discussed that was uh, pointed out to us in a book called secret societies and subversive movements in nesta webster's book and she got those 12 when she was doing her research from a book that is called the Royal Cyclopedia of Masonry. And again, I want to point out to you that she was saying that the great mass of the Freemasons do not know or care to know anything about the history of their order. And what I've been pointing out too, <clears throat> and it's going to come around uh, more and more as we proceed with these 12 theories and more. And if you guys have other theories that are out there, please write to me, send it in at MasonicMuscle357 at gmail.com so that we can continue to put this thing together, put a timeline to it, and share with everybody. But at that time, there was 12 theories. And as of now... Almost all Grand Lodges 
subscribe to the theory that we derive from operative masonry. And it's just like a, a gimme. Even though it's a theory, they promote it because it's the most politically correct one, I believe. But right now, what we've been doing is uh, breaking down the patriarch theory of the origins of Freemasonry. I've talked about the flood. I've talked about the antediluvians. I've talked about the Nephilim. And today, to dig deeper into that, I'm going to... I'm going to dig deeper into that. I have brother Matt Jackson with us. He's been with us several times. Been with me here. Matt, how you doing? Good evening. Doing great. Yeah. We're down here in Mexico. Where are we at, Matt? Where do you bring me? We're, we're in downtown Tijuana, Mexico. All Slugging right. it out with the cartels. You know, you got a low crawl across the street. Yeah. You know, because it's so dangerous down here. <laughs> uh, got to mind your wares and watch your back and all that. No, it's it's great. It's Tijuana is a great place. Yeah, we drove down last night, and somewhere around uh, where you begin to turn off to go into Oceanside on the freeway, it began to uh, rain, and it didn't stop all the way down into TJ. Uh, there was light traffic, but everyone was going about 60 miles an hour. Until we got down here, checked in, uh, drank a bunch of water, passed out later on. But anyhow, here we are. So today we're going to talk about the, the patriarch theory of the origins of Freemasonry. And there's a lot in there because the patriarchs, as I've talked about, are, are who? Who are the patriarchs? And, and you're going back before the flood or right after the flood, before the flood, antediluvians. It's an antediluvian group. The earlier, the earlier patriarchs comprised the antediluvian group. This is taken directly from an article from the Catholic Encyclopedia under the title Patriarchs. And then they, later on, they go on to describe them. And they describe the, how long they, they would live. According to here, one of the, nearly all of the antediluvian fathers are represented as living to the age of 900 or thereabouts. Mathesula, the oldest, reaching 969 years old. So they lived a long time. And then somewhere after that, after the flood, um, we stopped living that long. But this is something that uh, Brother Matt Jackson and I have been discussing quite a bit, but because he brings it up, the antediluvian aspect of possibly Freemasonry. So give us some of your thoughts right now, just to start it off, Matt, uh, what you mean, you know, where you're coming from, what are your thoughts on that? Well, going back to the Regis manuscript or the Wood manuscript, when, when they, you know, they talk about that, that the seven liberal arts and sciences has, have always been a, part of, been a part of masonry. And where my mind goes is, where are they sourcing that from? What, what, are, what, did, what did they have access to? That allowed them to put pen to paper and make that, you know, and make that statement. And it appears that whatever they had access to, and many other scholars throughout the the ages, whatever they had access to 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 write the history of Freemasonry, we we seem to not have it now, or not that it's readily available. In the time that the, the Anderson's Constitution was written. And it was, it was before 1723. That's when it finally came out. 
he gathered all kinds of uh, the old charges, the regulations. And they had this tale of the patriarchs being part of the history of Freemasonry. And so you go back and you read that Anderson's Constitution, whether it's 1723 or 1738 edition, a version, and you read this fantastic story and you wonder, well, back then they didn't have anybody to check their research. You know, they didn't have the internet. They were just writing stuff down. Uh, all the information wasn't readily available, but yet these supposed illiterate Masons having their constitutions, and there was a bunch of different versions of it, but they, they all coincided on, on like most of the important points, and they all had the antediluvian fathers and the patriarchs. We have to wonder, okay, well, what was going on during that time and and why did they put this in there directly linking the antediluvians or people call them Nephilim to Freemasonry? Why did that have to work out that way? In a book that came out to celebrate the 300 years of Freemasonry called Exploring Early Grand Lodge Freemasonry, Studies in the Honor of the Tricentennial of the Establishment of the Grand Lodge of England. There was, or there is a, a chapter called A Just and Exact Account of Masonry. And it is this part, uh, this chapter was written by Christopher B. Murphy. And he breaks down the constitutions, Anderson's constitutions, you know, uh, section by section. It was, it's brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. And this is what he says. It says, Are we to criticize Anderson? As historians, I think that the answer must be yes, provided that it is criticism with an understanding of what the contemporary conception of history was in his time. Scientific research was in its infancy and its scrupulous discipline was not applied to other subjects. To Anderson and his contemporaries, history was an amalgam of folk memory, legend, established fact, and recent events. They had few means of checking the accuracy of any folklore more than a generation old and saw nothing wrong in manufacturing information to fill a gap. Hamill is acknowledging the cultural context of 1723. He observed that it is unfair to, level, to levy the academic standards of one time onto another. He states that a reader ought not to dismiss this Masonic legend because of perceived flaws in the methodology of the writer. This is an important defense of the traditional theory. There are, however, two important points missing in Hamill's address. First, is to recognize a point made above that Anderson did indeed labor to fill gaps through research. Secondly, Hamill does not take into account the philosophical and spiritual intent of the legend. Then he says this will be addressed in detail below. So there was a spiritual and philosophical intent to this, but yet... The patriarchs are in there. 
Freemasonry is somehow connected to the antediluvians. The antediluvians, uh, a lot of them are Nephilim. And so the patriarchs, the Nephilim, the battle, the flood, what happened after these two pillars were, were made in order to preserve all the knowledge of the world during that time. There was two pillars. One of them was uh, created to withstand fire, the other one to withstand water. And here we are still talking about it. Still talking about it. Now, Brother Matt, I gave you that little that piece of paper that you're looking at right there. And uh, as we read through it again, it's Nestor Webster uh, said, said, the origin of Freemasonry, says a Masonic writer of the 18th century, is known to Freemasons alone. If this was once the case, it is no longer. For although the question would certainly appear to be one on which the initiated should be most qualified to speak, the fact is that no official theory on the origin of Freemasonry exists. And it's the one highlighted. So, it says that we should know this stuff, but that's not the case. The fact is that no official theory on the origins of Freemasonry exists. Then the 12 theories, right? The 12 theories. Again, we're on number one, from the patriarchs. And then number two, from the mysteries of the pagans, which will come later. And we'll begin to break that down. But we're still stuck on just the pagan theory of the origins of Freemasonry. Or the patriarch theory. I'm sorry. The patriarch theory of Freemasonry. So when you hear the patriarchs, uh, Matt, what do you, you know, what are you thinking there? Well, there's, a, there, there's kind of a lot to unpack. All right. Break it down. Uh, with, break it down. The, well, <clears throat> um. First off, from uh, talking about the patriarchs, right? If you follow Graham Hancock or any of the uh, alternative theories of of human migration mm-hmm. across the planet, the the conventional academia suggests, you know, the cradle of of uh, civilization being Mesopotamia, uh, right? And that that intelligent migration, civilization migrated from east to west. There's a lot of evidence on the ground that actually suggests that the opposite is true. That actually the migration happened from from the west to the east. And if we go to some of our oldest cultures, the uh, the, the Hindus, they say that they got their knowledge from the the Mogul kings who came out of the west from the Caucasus Mountains. They came from the Ukraine, the the region of the Ukraine. To now, who exactly they were, we that a lot of that's been lost to history. But this is where they got their knowledge within which they then wrote the Vedas and and all that. But their knowledge came from the West. Um, <clears throat> the Druids, the Celts, uh, they all said the same the same thing. Um, so could it be that when we're talking about the the patriarchs, we are talking about the Atlante Atlantean transplants? Right or or whatever culture existed pre-flood, that you know, could it be that these patriarchs were the survivors of that event? Because look, we got 
you know, you got Viracocha, right? He goes to, he goes to Peru and he, he gives them everything, architecture, astronomy, mathematics, geometry, right? I mean, how many stories do we have like that of this enlightened man who usually comes across the seas on a boat, right? And he brings culture, high culture, uh, education, knowledge, astronomy, language, technology, uh, technology <clears throat> written word, writing, uh, things as, as simple as this. And in so many of these origin myths for so many of our, of our cultures, basically what we have is a patriarch, right? That's founding this, this culture. <clears throat> we see that in a lot of different, in a lot of different places. So, um, So, for, so I think for me, and looking at, at masonry and looking at our oldest documents, um, okay, so we're, we're because our oldest documents say that, that this, the, the conveyance of the seven liberal arts and sciences through masonry is pre-Diluvian. Um, so that means it came, it came before the flood. So, so that then masonry was always, I mean, maybe, I'm putting this forward, that masonry was always the vehicle within which all of this teaching was embodied. It, it's, it's one uh, complete system because in it we do have, we have science, we have astronomy, we have mathematics, we have language, mor language morality, uh, you know, things that, that uh, are required by culture, you know, language, good articulation, the ability to articulate ideas, uh, well, if the ability to draw those ideas, uh, and then all of those are the foundational sciences for so many things, castle building, city building, city planning, uh, building aqueducts, building anything, building boats, buildings, cathedrals. Um, and you know, Graham, Graham Hancock says it, uh, you know, he said it in his latest thing. And, and my brother Greg's been saying this for years, that there's no way that, you know, people in Africa were just weaving baskets and one day they all decided, hey, let's build a megalithic monument. And they built this monument and then they just go back to being basket weavers and shepherds and pastoralists. So even in the, uh, uh, in the current academic model, even though they're pushing this east to west as the, as the, as the evolution of civilization, we just have evidence that, that contradicts that. And what academia does when it finds evidence that contradicts the, the current narrative, it basically just dismisses it. So no money is going into Baalbek. No money is going into the exploration of Darren Kuyu. You know, no money is going into the exploration of Pumapunku. Nope, it's all just going right into Egypt. So the collegia, even the collegia, it's, it's a racket, right? Even the collegia has a racket because they wrote a book 15 years ago and they still got to protect the sales of that book. And if they change their argument, well, that's going to affect their income. That's going to affect their, their money, right? So now even the narrative now is, is monetarily driven by even those who have propagated it and may have changed their minds, you know, they're now still subject to this. Well, you can change your mind, but now it's going to affect your money. You might lose your scholarship. You might not be able to go do that dig with Zawi Hawass uh, in Egypt. Uh, you know, it could be, it could be 
you know, changing your opinion in, in that level of academia could be suicide for your career. So. And recently, Graham Hancock has come out on Joe Rogan again. <clears throat> and <clears throat> uh, science is proving one of his theories correct that, <clears throat> that uh, the Earth had been hit with asteroids, uh, comets or something. Not a comet, but an asteroid. And destroying civilization. So they have found evidence of such. And now they're finding evidence supposedly of uh, Atlantis, the lost city of Atlantis, but it's called the Eye of the Sahara. So it was like right smack dab in the Sahara, but it's so remote that nobody can go over there. Like you have to have massive planning, all kinds of money to get helicopters over there with, uh, you know, with water and food and supplies to be able to just go over there and begin to check this thing out. But from the satellite images that they have, it meets like all the requirements that Plato had described. And the descriptions of Herodotus. And yeah. the descriptions of Herodotus and everybody <clears throat> else, that the Greek philosophers that had learned from the Egyptian high priest. So you have these things beginning to come together now. And by the way, Graham Hancock is highly aware of Freemasonry. He's highly aware of the Rosicrucians. He's talked about them in his books, either The Sign and the Seal or even... Um, uh, fingerprints of the gods or the magicians of the gods uh, some uh, some of his other books because somehow they're connected to to this to this history of the world that has been forgotten i think i believe graham hancock says that we have collective amnesia and so with the, this collective amnesia because it was so horrific what happened that it's still embedded in our dna but we don't want to remember but we kind of remember, and that's why when we see things on television or we see these articles, we, we try to make this connection once again, but it just doesn't happen because of the, the trauma that, of the whole events, all kinds of uh, earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and gigantic tsunamis, what is a two-mile-high wall of, a, of a, a wave just coming at you at 1,000 miles an hour and just completely demolishing whatever was there. Nothing survived. All that survived was the people that went up to the highest parts, to the highest hills, brethren, not the lowest veils, but to the highest hills and survived somehow. And then all over the world we have this myth that there was this flood and some, someone survived somehow. And how is Freemasonry connected to this? Somehow it is. I, I don't know. But the patriarch theory takes us right directly back to that. And it's interesting that in the 12 theories of the origins of Freemasonry, the very first one starts with the patriarchs, almost as if they're trying to do, like create some kind of timeline, right? You have to, you have to create a timeline for us to begin to see it evolving over time. Over, although sometimes, according to Graham Hancock, Everything is going fine. Everything is going fine. Everything's developing. Everything's evolving. But if a catastrophe like this happens, it just ended it right there. And now we got to start all over again. And we just lost two, three, four thousand years of, of uh, civilization, you know, before it kickstarts again. <clears throat> so this, this is uh, interesting. How it's connected to Freemasonry again, we don't know. But this is part of this 
podcast is to explore this. Why not? No one else is. And how come no one else is? Why 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 do we have to be a part of what uh Nesta Webster said what I read right now? That the great mass of the Freemasons do not know or care to know anything about the history of their order. Is that true, Matt? Is that how you feel? No, I think that's bullshit. Okay, why? Uh, well, so first I want to back up and I want to talk about that CIA document that they released in the, um, the 50s or the, or the 60s. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know when it became the public. Rep, yeah. The Adam and Eve story. Okay. Yeah, in that, and I haven't read the full document. It's a pretty lengthy document. But in that, the CIA is talking about these cataclysms, these these world cataclysms and they're they're talking about what they look like what like the experience of one of these events would have happened and also they also make no qualms that this has happened several times before just as the uh, egyptian priests told uh solus solon right when he was in when egypt right that this this has happened many many times before but basically you know this would be you know, with an event, if we were to have one of those type of cataclysmic events today, within 24 hours, our entire civilization would be back in the Stone Age. There would be nothing that we know or recognize would exist, would function, would work. It would really be back to rubbing sticks together to, to try to make fire and then go try to find something to eat. And hopefully you get enough calories that you can make a shelter. Uh, and, and we're going to go from there. So... So, so I think masonry <clears throat> being an inclusive system um, and because there's so much memory work, especially in Blue Lodge masonry, like to be passed, you know, to the next degree, you have to demonstrate that you know this. By heart. By heart. So <clears throat> I, I could, so... So if this were a, 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 a means, a mechanism to convey knowledge, right, throughout history and throughout time, uh, and to be able to endure cataclysm, endure war, social unrest, civil unrest, and all of those, uh, those uh, issues and yeah. catastrophes, each, each of their own, in their own kind, uh, catastrophes that, um, um, that I could see, I don't know, it just seems very plausible that, that masonry would have been a way that our patriarchs would have taken knowledge from whatever continent they came from, whether it was Atlantis uh, or not. But whatever continent they came from, island they came from, where they brought knowledge. Because somebody, somebody brought knowledge to Great Britain. Like, like they, the Druids somehow came up with all of that esoteric knowledge and it's pretty much all of the academia they kind of agree they didn't come up with it themselves right and even the jews the kabbalah right the 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 kabbalah and the sacred tree they got that from the jews the druids they just put their own spin on it they use their own they use their own terminologies they sort of redefined it uh, it may have changed some aspects of it but you're still dealing with the, the tree of life and and that, that was the same for the Druids, the Celts, uh, the Teutonics, the Franks, the Visigoths, the Vandals, all of those, those people, right, that, that the Romans would call the barbarians, 
um, those were all the same haplo group. It was like a loosely confederated uh, uh, tribe tribe of chieftains. Uh, yeah, but they all had basically the same cosmology, the same Norse, Viking, Teutonic, Druidic, Celtic, right? Basically, that tree of life cosmology. Hmm. Um, so, so I mean, so that's where the Kabbalah comes from. So even they got that. And even we say Judaism is like 5,000 years old. Well, they got their esoteric Judaism. They borrowed it, right? But so either the Druids somebody gave it to them or they landed there with it. But, but there's no, there's not really any origin. There's no origin documents going back that far. Well, it's you, like the, you, the book of the dead from uh, Egypt there. There's they've um, at first they thought it was from a certain time period, but then when they began to see other versions of it in, in like the, I think the, uh, the pyramid of uh, Edfu or Saqqara or something like that, and they saw it like all over the temple walls and everything. They realized that the priests had just copied it from older versions. And then they found older versions and older. So we don't know how old the Book of the Dead is. Well, and then we also have the Popol Vuh. So whose Book of the Dead are we talking about? <laughs> uh, and then you but, have the Tibetan, the so Tibetan monks. The, the they have Tibetan a Tibetan Book yeah, of the, the Dead, yeah. right? So it's... Could be one and the same, like or like from the same origin source, the point of origin. But they just have their own version of the Book of the Dead. But it's the same one. It would be like studying the Kabbalah versus the Yggdrasil for from the Viking but, okay, culture. Yeah. You're dealing with the same thing. the The terminology is going to be different. The language is going to be different. But the but the superstructure of the idea is is the same or very similar. Well. The patriarch theory of the origins of Freemasonry obviously takes it back uh, within within the Christian Christian and uh, Jewish realm. What is it to like uh, twenty six hundred BC or something like that? But when you're now considering some of the points that you're bringing up, it stretches it back now to like if you believe in what Graham Hancock is saying uh, and the last cataclysm was 10,000 BC which is like 12,000 years ago now now you're stretching it back 12,000 years ago and then if you take in some other factors that they're bringing up because a lot of these archaeologists Egyptologists they will date something but but they'll date it conservatively because they don't want to be too controversial well, well hang on are we talking about carbon dating no because that's already no, no, no. been cast out as, no, 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 as, as no. a fraud i'm just talking yeah, about fallacy, but. yeah yeah no and i i'm fully aware of what you mean no i'm just talking about the the temples like uh for gobleki tepe mm. and some of the other ones uh that just obviously they're more than twelve thousand years old but archaeologists will conservatively date it so they they don't get in too much of hot water with their colleagues, yeah. you know. So they'll just no no no. You know, we know it's older, but we're only going to say it's this old until we. But now you connect it to what we're talking about in Freemason and the patriarchs, and it just keeps going back and back. And Graham Hancock, he said that his uh, grandchildren or his children, either or, gave him a shirt, and it says everything just keeps getting older. <laughs> because as time goes on yeah. and more discoveries are made, it just pushes back what we thought was the 
you know, the oldest of the oldest back even further now. Well, there was a, <clears throat> there was a, I'm going to make a short story long, but I, I was watching a, a documentary years ago on the History Channel about, um, about um, Newton, Sir Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. And they talked about that he was a Mason. I didn't know that. And they also talked about he was a devout Christian. I didn't know that either. And he was obsessed with cracking, cracking the Bible code. Well, and I, I thought that very fascinating, but also he was a mathematician, so he's probably dealing with the numbers and, and all that. But later, <clears throat> some years later, I found out that uh, Sir Isaac Newton wrote a book called Chronologia. Chronologia. Um, and there was many uh, uh, all, uh, German scientists. There was a couple of German scientists that also wrote books about time in the 1830s, 1850s, in that during kind of during that uh, uh, period. So, so Isaac Newton he had he had he had some contemporaries within a couple hundred years of his life dealing with this issue. The issue being this. The, 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 the chronologia, the argument that he was putting forward in this book is that the timeline in the Bible is wrong. There's no way, there's no way that, that, that uh, we are in the correct space of time. And so many, there were many other, uh, other philosophers and historians that were putting out similar publications, just identifying these errors in the, in the, the record. Well, our latest contemporary is uh, the Russian guy, um, uh, uh, Fomenko, Anatoly Fomenko, right? And now he's saying, he's coming out and saying the same thing, but what he had more records. So he was actually able to isolate the individuals that actually did it, right? Uh, one of them, his name was Scaglia. He was a, uh, he was a, uh, a Vatican... Uh, cardinal i think he was a, i think he was a cardinal and 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 he had a there was a jesuit buddy that he had with him but those two uh scaglia uh was like uh, joseph scaglia and and this other gentleman i can't think of his name maybe it'll come to me but they're the ones who basically sat down and wrote what would be the dogma of our time our, our timeline when when genesis was uh, when that it was those two guys and <clears throat> Uh, to to posit Anatoly Fomenko's argument, these guys basically added the Dark Ages to our timeline, and I think this was the error that that guys like Sir Isaac Newton and his contemporaries they they weren't able to really sleuth out with the documents or the information they had available to them. But so Anatoly Fomenko is just basically saying that the 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 thousand years of the Dark Ages were basically just fabricated and plugged in to create a sense of separation or potentially to create some, a greater sense of distance between Christ and us today or so a disconnect, a, a kind of disconnect, but okay. And I'm glad you used that word because now when, when we go to the Gregorian calendar, right, when we moved to the solar calendar off of the lunar calendar, this directly took us out of um, alignment with the, the, cycles. Lo- the lunar cycles, yeah. Well, because when you're on a lunar calendar, it's much easier to stay in tune with your solstices and equinoxes, and, and you're dealing with, uh, you know, 28-day months. Precision. Uh, 13, you have a precision. Yeah. You have a precision there uh, to it. <clears throat> so there is, uh, I don't have the answers to it. 
uh, I, I guess I'm just putting forward that there is there have been so many academics that have put forward a problem with our timeline. I would just argue for any brother, it, it's it's worth looking into if if you really want to take a crack at history and really try and identify well where did Freemasonry come from? One of the things I, I still can't figure out, Brother Rubio, is what the fuck time is it right now? Mm -hmm. I don't. We don't really know where we are in time and relation in, in relationship to what, right? Uh, Hindu has its own calendar. Islam has its own calendar. Buddhist. The Jews have their, the Buddhists, you know, we Egyptians. use the Christian calendar over here. Yeah. The Coptic Christians, they probably have their own, uh, their own calendar. And then when you go to the East, right, they celebrate Christ's birth is like the, in Greek Orthodox is like January 28th or something like that, or 25th. Or, you know, they, they celebrate it in January or February hmm. uh, in, in the Orthodox tradition. So, so we have a, an obscurity uh, in time that... It's an anomaly, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, it's uh, a disconnect, obviously, of time. It's disconnecting us from our natural cycles of time as well. So that, that's, that's another aspect is this why Freemasons are so obsessed with tracking the movements of the sun? I mean... Well, so going back to the cataclysms, if we start talking about grand solar minimums, grand solar maximums, crop yield, magnetic output, if you can track that stuff, if you are like the guy who is like the farmer's almanac, then you, yeah, then you would be tracking the sun. Because it's going to be telling, it would tell you what time it is it would, yeah, it would tell you what time it is <laughs> and it would also be telling you like the things that you would need to know i mean maybe potentially preceding you know preceding events like uh you know in sailing they have all kind of expressions around the sun right like uh was it uh red skies at night sailors delight <laughs> red skies in morning sailors warning uh right well where's the red coming from the red's coming from the sun mm -hmm. right so the sun is being mm -hmm. used to illuminate something mm. right and i think that expression is just it's an old adage basically meaning like you know if you if you see if you see if the sun is red at dawn you're gonna have rough waters yeah. that day right but if you have if you have a you know a, a red sun at 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 um at twilight you know, at dusk, then you should have a nice, you're good. nice, calm yeah. evening. Yeah. yeah, you're good. So, yeah, and so, sailing is full of these types of of these types of axioms, and and I'm sure, like farming. I'm not a farmer. I never spent a lot of time with farmers, but I'm sure, like the guys out there, like in hide, like out in the fields doing the stuff. I'm sure they have a whole host of axioms hmm. uh, like that too. That are they're, that are going to be tied to the sun, solar, something celestial, or you know. Yeah, the, the the cycles. Yeah. So so this the, this uh, theory of the origins of Freemasonry connected to the patriarchs, you know, it 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 just opens up this wide, wide because we haven't we we didn't even talk about the Nephilim, and we're we're gonna do one with the Nephilim, uh, not today, but anyhow, uh, for right now, I I just want to wrap it up, uh, and I just wanted to get last words. Last words for this uh, episode, this this particular session. This is no small task. I mean, um, 
a lot of things were posited here. Uh, I mean, just trying to keep in mind uh, the time and the calendar. I mean, when we're, when you're going looking through history, uh, you know, we don't really know how accurate those dates uh, actually are for a lot of those for a lot of those particular events. As a matter of fact, even even World War II, it has come out that. A lot of these World War II academics, they said, oh, this general was here in this battle and this, that, and the other thing. And later it came out, no, in his diary, in his own personal diary, he was on leave, uh, you know, in France with his wife. So even a lot of this, I don't want to say that the collegia can't be trusted, but they're, they definitely have a, uh, their own like tack they're going down. The collegia is definitely going down a, a certain tack and everything that they do is to try to like, seems to try to uphold this, hmm. this model that, that we have, uh, going for the, 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 the common narrative for our, for our history. So, I mean, so I guess closing thoughts are, um, you know, this is a really big subject and, and for, I guess, any brothers really just starting to crack into this, you know, just one bite at a time, one bite at a time. This, this rabbit hole is deep. And, um, I mean, this will probably spend the rest of our lives, uh, <laughs> working on the, unless that volume comes out of a, a personal archive, you know, that, and somebody makes it public that, that book or that document or that next thing, you know, that, uh, that can lead us in the right, in the right direction. But I mean, for right now, all we really, really do have is really just speculation. And at best we can, we can stitch together a loose hypothesis, maybe at best with really no supporting evidence, just strong ideas. And, um, you know, the academia, yes, that they are, we can't, we can't say that they, they, they all stick together and like, this is a, uh, a conspiracy, but they have their own way of thinking. Not they what have I'm their saying own, at all. Yeah, they, not what I'm saying. They have their own way of thinking. They have their their uh, the training that they all went through uh, together. So it's gonna be it's gonna be uh, tough for them to step out of that realm and speculate like what we're doing. You know, we're speculative masons, uh, but there comes a point where we speculate so much we get good at it that we become operative again. But yes, yes, it's it's a big subject there's a it's it's like a giant onion right as soon as you pe you peel one layer off there's another layer and you, you keep going down and down because it's so big because there's so many pieces missing uh but there are people out there i believe like graham hancock robert shock john anthony west he passed away uh schwaller de lubich i mean he he's long gone but he he helped kick kickstart john anthony west on his uh mission that have been illuminating the way, have been somewhat of rebel scholars type type deals, and then just others that, you know, Graham Hancock isn't a scholar, uh, and he's never claimed to be. He's never claimed to be an archaeologist or any of that. But what he's saying is that we can all do this. We can all research this together. We can all look at this information and interpret it and talk to one another and form our own little circles and share knowledge and share information to try and get to closer to what we're trying to understand. And hopefully, you know, with us exploring the mysterious origins of Freemasonry, these first 12 theories, uh, 
and you guys pitching in, if you guys have other theories, if you guys have more information, uh, hey, share it with us. Write it in to me. Uh, share it. Uh, email it to me at, at MasonicMuscle357 at gmail.com so that we can begin to sift through it, see if we can put it together, uh, see if it adds or detracts from anything that we've said so that we can come to a greater understanding of what we are involved in. If you're a Mason, if you're not a Mason, if you're thinking about it, there's going to be a lot of research. There's going to be a lot of learning. There's going to be a lot of memory work. There's going to be a lot of headaches. You're going to meet a bunch of good Masons. You're going to meet some knuckleheads. And you've got to keep going. You've got to keep going, all right? So here from TJ tonight, we bid you adieu and keep searching. Keep going hard. Always. These strong sessions are calculated to inculcate in the mind of the novitiate the importance of subduing our passions and improving ourselves in masonry, feeding the attentive ear with the sound of the instructive tongue, endeavoring to add to the common stock of knowledge and understanding, effectively spreading the cement of knowledge and wisdom, and hopefully some good will towards exercising. Get out there and get your walking in. Open up your ciphers. Study, memorize, and just do it.